Let's again take out our Bibles and turn to John chapter 6. John chapter 6. And we will be looking today at verses 16 through 35. John 6, starting in verse 16. Again, this is God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. When evening came... His disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough, because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I. Do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the, of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there, and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum, seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, what must, we be do- what, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do, that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, Give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of our God remains forever. You may be seated. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do thank you for this reading of your word. We pray, O God, that you would give to us special attention to the preaching of your word. Help us to understand this passage, to apply it to our lives, that we may give you glory in all things. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. It's been said that the uh, visitors to Calvin's Geneva in the 16th and early 17th century often commented on the disciplined and moral lives which they encountered in the city there. Um, Absent from their experience, 
was any cursing or swearing. Neither was there gambling or strife. He didn't find fraud or anything like that. Geneva, at that time, seemed to be some bit of heaven on earth. Of course, if one were to give a closer investigation uh, to the consistory records, uh, that is, the records of the elders of the church there, or if, they were, if you were to look at the records of the civil magistrate in Geneva, one would discover that sin existed abundantly in Geneva as it did anywhere else in Europe. The difference, though, is found in the strength of the church, which is the pillar and buttress of the truth. The preaching of the gospel, the shepherding of God's people. The church of Jesus Christ impacts the world through the preaching of the gospel and of the Holy Spirit transforming the hearts of men. This is what the Reformed ministers of Geneva believed, and this is what they were doing. The problem they had, and the problem which still exists for us today, is that not everyone in the city, not everyone in Geneva, was converted. Even as some conformed to what was normative, they had not been transformed. And so the church courts in Geneva had their hands full. In fact, I read this week that they averaged, the, the consistory in the church there averaged, I think it was something like 6,000 discipline cases a year. That's incredible. You see, though, beloved Christian, in his infinite wisdom, God has not yet established an earthly kingdom for the reign of Christ at this point in history. He he is, even now, in the process of subduing a people to himself, he is pleased to see people transformed through the preaching of the word, through the work of the Holy Spirit. And the day is coming when when Jesus will return again. He will establish his earthly reign forever. But this will come not at our initiative. It will come at the initiative of the triune God. Now this fact was what the crowds who had witnessed the miracles of Jesus, the bread, this is what they did not yet grasp. What interested the crowd was when they saw Jesus, what interested them was what they saw Jesus could offer them. In this case, they wanted food. They wanted an earthly rule. And likely they wanted the overthrow of the Roman government. But Jesus shows them that his kingdom is not of this world. A point which he will make explicit later in John chapter 18. He says, before Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. Right? If I, my kingdom was this world, my disciples would be fighting. They'd be taking up arms right now. His kingdom is not of this world. The bread of life, the living water, the heavenly kingdom which Jesus offers is imperishable. The problem is the people were seeking those things which were transient. Now last time when we studied this, the account of Jesus' feeding of the 5,000, and I, I know it's been a couple of weeks, 
But we saw that he, that he and the disciples had left the region around Jerusalem and had returned to Galilee and had sought a desolate place. Now some of the people had heard that Jesus was there and they came from the surrounding villages and in some cases they went running around the Sea of Galilee to find Christ. And so Jesus taught the people there and then seeing that the hour was late and the people were hungry and there was no place to purchase food, Jesus fed the whole crowd of people, 5,000 men, Uh, which means that there were probably close to 20,000 when you include the women and children. He fed them all with five loaves and two fish. And then the scraps were gathered and 12 baskets filled to the brim were collected. The men who had been fed, now seeing this miracle having taken place, desired to take Jesus by force and to make him to be their king. But Jesus, knowing their hearts, withdrew from them and he went up into the mountains. Now the disciples, and this is where we pick up the narrative here in verse 16, the, the, the disciples went down the mountain and they went to the sea, they went into their boat and they began to cross the sea to go to Capernaum. And so John tells us that it was dark as they were going across uh, the sea. Now it's nighttime, it's dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. Now, of course, this is technically true, right? It is dark, and, uh, and, but John's statement is actually pregnant with some symbolism. It is the dark of night, and Jesus is not with them. Now, we're told elsewhere... That some of the disciples did not yet believe. That did not yet believe. They're in darkness and Jesus was not with them. And so it's dark. They're out in the middle of the lake. And Matthew and his account tells us that it was the fourth watch, which would then put the time around three o'clock in the morning. So, it's late, it's dark, it's about 3 a.m., and on top of everything else here, uh, the winds had kicked up, a storm was blowing across the sea, uh, and the waves had become rough. Now, the Sea of Galilee is known for its violent squalls and its rough waters. It's, it's really famous for that. And so we, we read that when they had rowed about three or four miles, and the Greek here is 25 or 30 uh, stadia, uh, we, in our English, uh, the English Standard Version, they, they give it to you in miles just so it's more recognizable for you. Uh, but as they're, at the, they're about three or four miles out, they see Jesus walking near them. Now, to give you a little bit of a picture of this, the Sea of Galilee is roughly seven miles by 12 miles in size. That's a, how large uh, the lake is. And the disciples are essentially in the middle of that lake. And so it's here, in the middle of the Sea of Galilee, there's this fierce storm which has come across them. And verse 19, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat and says they were frightened. Now, John doesn't specify uh, the reason for their fear, although Mark chapter 6 and verse 49 records that they thought they had seen a ghost. So Mark tells us that as they see Jesus, they think this, that this is a ghost out here. And different from Mark, though, John's purpose isn't to consider the cause of their fear, but to present the solution to their fear. The point, though, is that the disciples were greatly afraid. 
Now it should be kept in mind as well that many of these men were seasoned fishermen. They were very accustomed to the kinds of storms that they were experiencing here, the rough seas. Now imagine how you might feel if you were in the middle of a vast lake and a storm comes up suddenly. Now, some of you may have experienced something of that nature before. But the waves are crashing ferociously over the sides of the boat. And the men are straining with their oars against the sea. They're trying to keep the boat right. They're trying to get toward land, but they're making very little progress. And then suddenly, there's, there's someone walking on the water. Wait, wait who is that? It's the Lord. Here is Jesus, and he's not even on a boat. Imagine that scene for a minute. How, how, would, you exp- how would you experience that, right? I mean, I don't know about you, I'd already be afraid with the, the, with the storm. But now, here's Jesus strolling along the sea. He's not in a boat. Now, some of you might say, Ah, yes, here is the, here's the Son of God. Yeah. Very calmly, right? Here is, the, here is the one who is both man and God. Right? Yeah. It's Jesus. Right? No biggie, right? Here is the one who takes away the sins of the world. That, that's what you might say. Of course, we know the story, right? That's what you might say if you were clear-headed in the moment. But if, probably most of us would be a little bit more like the disciples and think, oh, this is a ghost. <laughs> what is this? You might wonder, how is he doing that? Uh, who is this that could turn water into wine? Who can multiply bread and fish? And now who can walk through a raging storm on the sea? Who is this? You know, even as you and I know this story well, we know the power of Christ to see such a thing would be bewildering for us. Wouldn't it? The disciples, not being much different from you and me, reacted with fear. Our brains would find it difficult to comprehend how could a man walk on the sea in a storm? And so they're afraid. But notice that Jesus brings comfort to his disciples. Look at verse 20. He says, It is I, do not be afraid. Jesus immediately calms the fears of the disciples. And notice he does this even before he calms the storm. He identifies himself. It is I, it is I, do not be afraid. Now, the Greek here is interesting. It is ego eimi, which is the same structure as the famous I am statements of John's gospel. Ego eimi, I am. You know, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the vine, and you are the branches. I am the good shepherd. I am the door. And of course, what is seen here in chapter 6... I am the bread of life. Ego means I, emi means I am. Now in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the words used to translate the divine name in Exodus chapter 3, verse 14, you know, Yahweh, is 
I am who I am, and it is, as you guessed, ego, a me. Now, each of the I am statements, um, what Jesus is doing is making a clear disclosure of himself. The question we might ponder is, should this have been included in those statements? Now, on the one hand, in the present context, this is not an unusual way of speaking. If one were to use an economy of words, you would say, it is I, or I am. This is not an unusual way of speaking. On the other hand, as D.A. Carson puts in his excellent commentary, quote, the thoughtful reader who has read through this gospel two or three times ought to observe the number and varied forms of I am sayings and wonder if this occurrence in verse 20 may not be an anticipation of a clearer self-disclosure by Jesus. End quote. And could it be that Jesus is providing a hint of what is to come later? It's at least possible. But mainly what Jesus is doing, and this is really the point here, Jesus is disclosing himself and bringing comfort to them. He is comforting his disciples in the midst of a storm. He discloses his presence. It is I. Do not fear. They don't need to be afraid, for Jesus is here. He is there to help them. They are not alone in the dark anymore. They are not without their Savior, even in the midst of the storm. Jesus is with them. Well, what an excellent comfort for them, isn't it? What an excellent comfort. What an excellent comfort for us. So the disciples, verse 21, says that they gladly take Jesus into the boat. And immediately it says the boat was at the land to which they were going. Now, there are two ways we can understand verse 21. One is to take the language strictly, which suggests that when Jesus got into the boat, they were transported to the shore immediately. This would be... Uh, one way to understand it, and it would suggest that another miracle had taken place, the calming of the storm, and then immediately being transported. The other way to take this is that once Jesus got into the boat, the storm, the storm ceased, and they had no other problems as they made their way uh, to the other shore. Now, this suggests too a miracle took place. The storm was calmed and allowed them free passage. And, of course, God is the one who controls the storms. Now, neither understanding is really problematic. Um, I don't, you know, you can understand it either way. And I, don't, I don't necessarily have one preference over the other. But, um, but the symbolism present shouldn't escape our notice. You see, in the Bible, the sea often represents chaos and disaster. We saw this in our study of Genesis. God rules and overrules over all things. And the one who brings the storm is also the one who, cease, who causes the storm to cease. We see this in the account of Jonah. God sends a storm after Jonah, and then he calms the storm as the prophet is thrown into the drink. Psalm 65, 5 
through 7 says this, By awesome deeds you answer us with righteousness, O God, of our salvation. The hope of all the ends of the earth and of the furthest seas. The one who by his strength established the mountains, being girded with might, who stills the roaring of the seas, the roaring of their waves, the tumult of the peoples. Either way, we understand verse 21. The point is that Jesus Christ is Lord over the sea. And he brought his disciples through the difficulty which they were facing. Well, this historic event serves as a great illustration for our lives, doesn't it? Do we not face great difficulties? Do we not have the storms of life? Do we too not need to be brought through? Do we not need to hear Jesus say to us, It is I. Do not fear. You are not no longer in darkness. You are in Christ. It isn't that we are kept from the storms of life, but in Christ, we will make it to the other side, whatever that may be. In an ultimate sense, this is what Jesus has done on the cross. A people in darkness, battered and beaten, slaves to sin, have been brought safely through by Christ. By the blood of his cross, you and I have been set free and are being brought through. What other hope do we have but Christ? Well, continuing again in the narrative, verse 21, we come to the next day. And the crowds which remained on the eastern side of the sea, that is the side where the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 men had taken place, and the crowd there was sort of loitering around, like they're waiting for Jesus to return. They noticed that only one boat was left. So they know the disciples had left and the boat is still there. And so they're kind of waiting around. Is Jesus going to come back? Now, they notice that he doesn't come back. He's nowhere to be found. Meanwhile, there's other boats from the city of Tiberias which come. And they come to that same place uh, where the uh, this miracle had occurred. Uh, likely they had come to fetch their, some family members and friends who had come around on the previous day. And so when the crowd there realized that Jesus, along with the disciples, were nowhere to be found, uh, the people got into the boats and then they headed over to the other side to Capernaum, seeking Jesus. And verse 25 then tells us they found him on the other side of the sea. And so they asked him this, Rabbi, when did you come here? Now remember, there had been a terrible storm the night before. And the last time they'd seen Jesus was after the miracle of the bread and the fish. So they want to know, when did you get here? Actually, their question really has, there's two, two questions in the, in the one. When did you get here and how long have you been here? When did you get here and how long have you been here? Notice too that the, the crowd calls him rabbi. Now, rabbi, of course, means teacher, but they're about to dispute his teaching. So there's something ironic about what they call him. They had desired to make him king, but they know nothing of the nature of his reign. Now, notice, too, that Jesus, he doesn't even acknowledge their question in the narrative. Instead, he gets right to the heart of the matter. He gets right to the center of their hearts. Jesus gives a strong, assertive, truly, truly, I say to you, 
He draws their attention to the words which he is going to utter next. Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you, are, you had ate your fill of the loaves. Jesus is saying, I speak openly, I speak truly. The reason you want me is not because of the sign you saw. It's not because of what that sign points to. That's not why you, you want me. You are interested in me because of the bread that's in your belly. Jesus is questioning their motives. Why are they following him anyway? Now Jesus, of course, knows the answer. He provides the answer. They're not interested in what the sign pointed to, namely that he is the Son of God. They're interested in the sign itself. They want bread. They want their felt needs met. That's what they want. The crowd here had failed to see what the sign signified. The sign had filled their stomachs. And so the crowd had been physically satisfied. And from just that, they were ready to make Jesus to be the leader of their movement. But they had failed to understand the parabolic significance of what had taken place. They did not see how what Jesus had done pointed to a more important and a deeper truth. Now, to be fair, uh, Mark, uh, in Mark's Gospel, Mark points out that uh, the twelve disciples didn't necessarily get it either. And in Mark chapter 6, verse 52, we read this, They did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. This is speaking about the disciples. If the disciples had a hard time understanding what Jesus was doing and what he was talking about, how much more did the crowd not understand? Nevertheless, the sign of the bread pointed to the truth of the gospel, to Jesus himself, who is the bread of life. This is what the discourse which follows is about. The people were seeking the wrong thing. In fact, after getting to the heart of why they're seeking him, he then exhorts them. Look at verse 27. Do not work for the food that perishes, but the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. From him, God the Father has set his seal. Jesus knows their hearts. The people... We're approaching the Lord from a purely materialistic fashion. Much like Nicodemus and much like the woman at the well, the crowd was only able to apprehend that which was physical. And this is how they saw the kingdom of God, too. They saw it in, in, in a physical sort of sense. They, they were only able to understand physical food. They could only understand physical water. They could only understand a physical Kingdom. What they wanted was the glory of Israel of old again. An earthly Israel. It may be the case that they were willing to accept Jesus as their Messiah, but only they only saw him as establishing an earthly kingdom. Jesus' point is, don't work hard for the things which are going to rot away. See, the people were hankering for bread which would fill their bellies. Jesus could feed them. Jesus could feed them. Jesus could feed them, but tomorrow their bellies would growl again. The point isn't, of course, that they shouldn't eat food. 
nor that they shouldn't seek to do, to do so. The point is that all of their energy should not be poured into seeing their immediate needs being taken care of. They should have an eternal focus, a heavenly focus. This is a lesson which our, the church of our own day needs to learn too. Too many are seeking to save Western civilization or to install Christian governors. That's not that we should not desire those things or even seek to see those things come to pass any more than the people should not eat food or should eat food. But where should our energies be spent? For the temporary or the transient or for the eternal? What is the purpose of the church of Jesus Christ? We already have an eternal king. Jesus Christ is king. And so our energies should be put into that spiritual kingdom, fulfilling the great commission, making disciples of the nations, worshiping the Lord, growing in godness, seeking first His kingdom and His righteousness, living out the gospel in our daily lives, seeking to merely establish an earthly kingdom is tantamount to storing your treasure in perishable things rather than the imperishable. Don't work so hard for that which is temporal. Don't work so hard for food which perishes. Don't work so hard for kingdoms which will falter. Seek rather that which endures to eternal life. That which the Son of Man gives, because God the Father has set His seal on Him. This is what Jesus is saying in verse 27. Jesus, God the Son, came in the flesh, had been especially authorized by God the Father to provide eternal life, the bread of life, which does not perish, ultimately is Himself. This is why the bread of the Lord's Supper is such a fitting symbol for us. The Father has set His seal, His special authorization, His approval upon the Son. And therefore, our energies should be spent in Him, on what pleases Him and what advances His kingdom, and not our own. But notice, again, the people misunderstand Jesus' point. He said, don't work for that which perishes. And so they ask, then what work must we do? Okay, don't work for that, so what do we we do? What work must we do? What must we do to be doing the works of God, they ask. Now Jesus wasn't trying to get them to do or not do any particular kind of work, but rather that there are more important things than than pursuing material blessings. You might be gifted a bit of bread, but that bread is temporary. In fact, that bread is gone after you eat it, isn't it? You might be gifted a Christian nation, but even that is temporary. Our own nation is a glaring example of that. Calvin's Geneva even more so. Don't fret yourself over that which is temporary. And so again, Jesus sets them straight as to what they are to be doing. Seeking that which is eternal. Verse 29. This is the work of God, that you believe in Him whom He has sent. What are are we supposed to do? Believe. No, but I'm supposed to do... No, believe. 
Listen, faith is not something we do in the abstract. We don't have faith in faith. True faith, true belief must have an object. It must be directed at someone, that is, the Son of God, who was sent by the Father. This is what must be done. We must believe in Christ. We must trust and rest in Him. Faith is a gift from God, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 tells us. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. Faith in Christ. Christ is the proper object. And this is what the Father requires. And so on one level now, the crowd understood something of what Jesus was saying. He was claiming to be speaking with authority. He was claiming to have the seal of God the Father upon him. And the people were to believe in him. They're beginning to understand. But now, it begins to feel like we're going around in circles. Because in response to that, the crowd wants a sign. It's like we've just gone around and around. Verse 30, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? They wanted to they want to repeat the previous sign, right? Give us some more food. Now, okay, we get what you're saying. Well, prove it to us. Give us a sign. One would think that the miraculous feeding of the thousands of people would have been enough. They had already connected that this was the one that Moses had promised would come, but now they figured they had the right to ask for more from him. If this is really who Moses said would come, then he ought to do what Moses had done, and even more. Look at verse 31. Our fathers ate the man in the wilderness, as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Now, you would think that Jesus' teaching about spoiling food, about seeking that which is eternal, you know, coupled with the previous sign, that they would understand. You know, don't seek the things that are temporary. Okay, great. Give us some manna then. I mean, I don't know. Sometimes you look at it and you're like, are you, are you dense? I'll accept that maybe we're dense too sometimes. I don't know, maybe, maybe, I don't know. But like, what? What? Give us manna? I mean, that's even worse if you think about it. It's worse than what they had before. What happened to the manna in, in the Old Testament? The manna which Moses gave did spoil over time. In fact, it spoiled that evening, didn't it? With the exception of the Sabbath day, it's spoiled every evening. Jesus is here promising something that's even greater, something that's eternal. And what they say is, give us that 24-hour bread again. What? Maybe they really don't get it. They still want something physical. At any rate, they also give the wrong person credit for the manna. Verse 32, Jesus says to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven. It's not Moses who gave it to you. You're giving the wrong guy credit. My Father gives you the true bread from heaven. Moses is not the one who provided the bread. It was God who provided the bread from heaven. It was God who provided the the manna. But not only had Moses been given center stage and God pushed the side as concerns the man in the wilderness, but the, pr- the true bread wasn't even the man in the wilderness. 
That wasn't even the true bread. Even that was a sign of something greater. The true bread was what God was giving them now. It was standing before them now. Oh, how the people were missing it. How they were missing it. Verse 33. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. God is giving the true bread from heaven. Jesus provides the true bread to all who believe in him. This means that the bread given is not exclusively for the Jews, but to all the nations who believe. The true bread is life-giving because Jesus is the bread. He is the true bread who reveals God, who tells us of heavenly things, is obedient to the Son and is himself the Word of God. It is Jesus himself. Jesus is the true bread come from heaven who brings life. He is the one who sustains and spiritually nourishes His covenant people. All who trust and rest in Him have salvation, have eternal life. Don't don't be looking and waiting for some bread to start falling out of the sky to fill your bellies. Go to the one who is the bread, who is giving life, and who is reconciling us to God. The bread that is a person, the object of our faith. Jesus Christ. But still, still, the people don't really get it. Although their statement in verse 34 is vague, their grumbling later will reveal their hearts. Like the woman at the well who said, Sir, give me this water, the crowd says, Sir, give us this bread always. They take Jesus' words to mean bread which comes from heaven as physical bread. They have missed the point again that Jesus is the bread of life. And so Jesus speaks plainly to them. Finally, he speaks plainly to them. He says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Jesus speaks plainly. He speaks explicitly as to what he means And he will explain this more in what comes next. But the people, or many of them at least, will not believe. And many of them will hotly dispute Jesus. You know, the disciples of Jesus Christ had witnessed some astoundingly miraculous events. They had seen Jesus heal the sick. They had witnessed his feeding of the thousands of hungry souls. They had heard his teaching. And as we see here, the disciples had witnessed Jesus walk on water and have control over the elements. But even with all of these extraordinary events, even the disciples struggled to comprehend who this Jesus is. Jesus had taught in new and seemingly esoteric ways, and yet his teaching was not new, nor was it esoteric. Jesus uh, promises bread of life. He promises water of life. These are concrete illustrations of spiritual realities which connect to basic Old Testament teaching, particularly Isaiah. And we read this for our Old Testament passage, Isaiah 55, 
Recall again Isaiah 55. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy, and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. And then Isaiah asks, why do you spend your money for that which is not bread? And why do you labor for that which does not satisfy? Doesn't that sound like what Jesus was just teaching? Isaiah says, listen diligently to me and eat what is good. Delight yourself in rich food. This is what Jesus is is offering us. Jesus is offering us himself and he says, come feed on me. Isaiah presents the coming of the promised salvation from God. He presents the receiving of the word, which is the revelation of God himself. And he pictures this in terms of eating and drinking. This is what we, when we're talking about this, this is what we, we talk about this at the, at the Lord's Supper all the time, feeding on Christ, right? We're feeding on Christ. We're feeding on his word. We're, we're taking him and learning from him. We're hearing why should the people satisfy themselves which that which that that does not satisfy. We might ask that of ourselves. Why do we try to satisfy ourselves with things that aren't actually satisfactory? And let's be honest, we do this all the time, don't we? Aren't we constantly seeking other things to find satisfaction? We need to be reminded constantly. I don't know. I mean, maybe it's just me. You know, I sit around and think, I, I find, I try to satisfy myself in all sorts of other ways. Why am, why am I going after bread which is temporary? Why aren't I seeking Christ? Maybe you're like me. Why should we satisfy ourselves with with that which does not satisfy? We're being invited, come, listen to God. Receive goodness from Him. Come, buy and eat without money, without price. Romans chapter 10, verse 17 tells us that faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. We are to feast on the deliciously prepared food of God's word and to delight ourselves in that. For in God's word are the promises of Jesus Christ, who is the bread of life, who brings to you and to me life. But the people of John chapter 6 seem to miss, beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, please do not miss. Do not miss this, please. Don't seek to find satisfaction in the things of this world. And by the world, what I mean is the systems and administrations of this present age. Don't be satisfied to see Western civilization saved. Don't satisfy yourselves in seeing the right people put into public office or the right legislation being passed or seeing your agenda come to fruition. Don't be satisfied with having Christians holding the sword of civil authority, but also don't be satisfied in thinking that you have your own life under your own control. (coughs) Or that you just had a little bit more that would be enough. You know, it's like the saying, um, I think it was Rockefeller, they asked, well, how much money would you need to be satisfied? And his answer was, always, just a little bit more. The reality is, you never can have enough. Don't try to satisfy yourself with things which are temporary. Don't be satisfied in eating bread which perishes. Understand, this is not a criticism of those things. Of course, a man needs to eat. Uh, the message here is not, well, don't eat anymore. Like, don't worry about food. If, if, that, if you thought that, you've missed the point. 
You've got to eat. You need resources to live. We should desire good leaders. We should desire uh, just laws. Don't hear what I'm not saying. Jesus is not being critical of people's need to eat, eat physical food. These other things are mentioned are not bad things or wrong things. They're just not ultimate things. Beloved congregation, find your satisfaction, find your rest in the bread of life who has come, the one who truly quenches the hunger of your soul, who gives true and lasting rest to the weary, such as you and me. Hear from him, believe in him, and don't think that if you could just get this, you could get this world straightened out and that all will be well, or if you could just get your life straightened out, all will be well. All is well because Jesus Christ is the King of Kings who makes all things well. It is He who is renewing all things to Himself through the blood of His cross. The saving message which is the duty of the church of Jesus Christ to proclaim to all the nations. Beloved, it is Christ who will one day return. And on that great day of the Lord, He will come in glory. He will usher in the fullness of His eternal kingdom. Until then, you and I wait eagerly, seeking His kingdom and His righteousness. Storing up for ourselves heavenly treasure where moth and rust do not destroy. Oh, that our hearts would would be revealed to be heavenly minded and not of this world. For in the heavenly places is our great reward, eternal life with Christ our Lord. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we do thank you for your word. We confess, God, that we at times find ourselves wrapped up in, in, in... Pursuing the things of this world, our energies are spent in that. Lord, help us to be mindful of that which is eternal. Not that we care nothing for this world or care nothing for what's going on in this world. We, we know that your, your point, oh God, was not that food is unimportant. But help us to seek diligently that which is eternal, that which is lasting. May we find our comfort in our rest, in our Savior Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.